Our Father, we come before you uh, with grateful hearts for the opportunity to continue our study. We thank you that um, we are being made privy to great truths, great ideas that would have always been beyond our grasp were it not for your revelation of yourself and your purposes and the recording of that revelation in your book. And we thank you for this great summary of the teaching of the scripture. And we pray that we would continue to profit from our engagement with it. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, um, first let me ask, uh, did everyone get a copy of the document I sent out um, this afternoon? You have access to it. I can put it on the screen if we need to. If anybody does, I should say, does anyone not have it? All right, I'm not seeing any uh, um, concern there, so I won't bother to put it on the screen. We started chapter four of creation the last time we were together, got into some of the interesting and important things about the doctrine of creation, and we left the last two bits for tonight, uh, that is, in the space of six days and all very good. And I did intimate that uh, I think that the days of creation have a considerably more prominent role in contemporary theological discussions uh, than they warrant intrinsically. Uh, the days uh, are a matter of uh, reporting, and what is reported needs to be understood, but there is nothing intrinsically important about it. Um, the, and I think um, it's been well pointed out that God could have created in any amount of time he wanted to. He could have created in an instant, which apparently Augustine thought that he was offended by the idea of days that would take God so long to <laughs> create. But um, then, uh, in any case, we're going to have to take up that question. The divines have noticed that this creation was in the space of six days. That's certainly a prominent characteristic of Genesis 1. Um, and uh, you, you probably noted Chad's comment. Uh, he didn't go into it at any length, but he noted that um, uh, many uh, there were a number of the divines who held to uh, 24-hour days, as you can see from their writings. They expound upon that point. Uh, and given that fact, at least Chad's mind, it's a curiosity as to why the assembly left that matter unspecified when they could have, and many in that period did, um, specify that the, these were 24-hour days. From the beginning, um, people have noticed that although the regular word for day is used in the text, the means for the calculation of a day doesn't come at the beginning. It, it comes several days later in the creation of the sun and the moon. So that's been a curiosity for a long time. Um, there are many folk who think that uh, evolution was the cause of people beginning to 
doubt the idea of 24-hour days, but that isn't really true. It was long before evolutionary theory. In fact, it was geologists that caused the problem. And uh, geologists, most of whom were outstanding Christian people, if you read the history of it, and so were deeply perplexed about what seemed to be, uh, for them, um, the evidence from God's world and how to understand that evidence in relationship to God's word. Uh, so it, it was what people thought they understood by studying the strata of uh, the earth and so on. Well, be that as it may, um, Reformed theologians, uh, especially in the Princeton tradition, um, were not troubled by the question of 24-hour days, and for a variety of reasons. Um, and in fact, I'll say, just a, a bit of biography, um, I came to Reformed Christianity via Labrie, and then via Ligonier Valley Study Center in Western Pennsylvania when it was there. And uh, uh, especially through John Gerstner in seminary. Western Pennsylvania, the Calvinism of Western Pennsylvania was uh, deeply uh, indebted to the Princeton theology, the Princeton tradition, um, Alexander Hodge Warfield. Um, and I uh, became an enthusiastic proponent of Reformed theology, and uh, for my first years, I didn't know a Calvinistic Christian who held to 24-hour days. In fact, I understood that there was a distinctive of Reformed Christianity that it didn't buy into uh, the 24-hour day theory, uh, but that that was a, a vestigial remains of uh, an older fundamentalism. So you imagine my shock when uh, I came into the PCA many years later and found that some of the uh, most wonderful Calvinists were also uh, rabid 24-hour day people and who looked at me, since I wasn't, with uh, some uh, shock because I was otherwise known as a pretty robust Calvinist, they they maybe, in fact, never <laughs> seen a creature like me in the same way I was looking at them as marvelous in my eyes. But uh, in any case, the PCAs had, had to come to grips with that. And uh, finally, it did a paper on uh, the creation days uh, put together by a committee uh, of some s substance and they identified four different ways of looking at this that they thought were in the, within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. But I thought it'd be interesting for you to see what two 19th century uh, writers uh, in the Reformed tradition, A.A. A. Hodge, the son of Charles Hodge, uh, Hodge who wrote a commentary on the Confession of Faith in his magnificent book called Outlines in Theology. It's one of the finest one-volume works you can read to uh, understand uh, 19th century American Presbyterianism and its theological expression. And uh, a man called Francis Beatty, who is a Canadian, but he, he was uh, a theologian at uh, Louisville Theological Seminary, a, a Southern Presbyterian seminary, 
also a very fine theologian. Both of them, I have an excerpt from their discussion of this in their commentary on the Confession of Faith. We'll look at Hodge first. Um, and he's wanting to help folk know how to think about this difficulty. You probably remember that um, uh, um, Bishop Usher, Irish Bishop Usher, an outstanding Reformed theologian himself, in fact, Usher could have been at the Westminster Assembly, and his Articles of Religion, I think it's called Body of Divinity, I can't remember the title, but his Body of Divinity um, was closely read by the Westminster Divines, and many people say that it provided a, a sort of framework that they took up. Um, so Usher was a remarkable man. He was a great scholar. Uh, he didn't have as much to work with in that period, but he decided he wanted to write a history of the world. And um, about the middle of the 17th century, that was published, if my memory's correct. And um, in the course of that, Usher figured he could calculate how old the earth was. And he came to the conclusion that uh, the creation took place in October. <laughs> the October part's even harder to, to not smile about, but October in 4004 BC. And um, that had a tremendous influence. Now, Usher uh, was not a foolish person, but he did the calculations based on the genealogies and other chronological data in the Old Testament. And he couldn't have known then what we know now, is that those genealogies aren't strict chronologies. The pattern in the ancient world was to only highlight some of the most important figures in the line, not get each and every one of them. Uh, and so the chronologies really don't give you a, a way to get at the age of the earth. Um, but the point is, a very fine Reformed theologian thought it was 4004 BC. It was a mistake, but an honest mistake. Um, and that's kind of what Hodge is wanting to wrestle now with, what he knows that Usher couldn't have known, that at least the study of geology was going to make it look like the earth was way older uh, than that. So, uh, let's look at what he has to say. Since the confession was written, the science of geology has come into existence, and it has brought to light many facts before unknown as to the various conditions through which the world, and probably the stellar universe, have passed previously to the establishment of this present order. These facts remain in their general character unquestionable, and indicate a process of divinely regulated development consuming vast periods of time. No adjustment thus far suggested has been found to remove all difficulty. The facts which are certain are, first, the record in Genesis has been, been given by divine revelation and therefore is infallibly true. Second, the book of Revelation and the book of nature, that's creation and the Bible, the book of Revelation and the book of nature are both from God and will be found when both are adequately interpreted to coincide perfectly. Three, 
the facts upon which the science of geology is based, are yet very imperfectly collected, and much more imperfectly understood. The time has not yet come. The time has not come yet in which a profitable comparison and adjustment of the two records can be attempted. 4. The record in Genesis is brief and general, as it is, and was, des was designed and is admirably adapted to lay the foundation of an intelligent faith in Jehovah as the absolute creator and the immediate former and providential ruler of all things. Notice there, Hodge puts in essence what he thinks Genesis is all about, what it's trying to communicate, but was not designed either to prevent or to take the place of scientific interpretation of all existing phenomena and of all traces of the past history of the world which God allows men to discover. Now here's the punchline. Apparent dis discrepancies in established truths can have their ground only in imperfect knowledge. God requires us both to believe and to learn, and he imposes upon us at the present the necessity of humility and patience. Uh, I think that is a brilliant analysis and uh, laying out of a strategy that a Christian can use in any period when there are apparent conflicts between the investigations of natural science and the investigations of Scripture. And I, I think Hodge's confidence uh, that they are two books of God, one of uh, uh, nature, one of revelation, um, and that... Uh, when there seems to be a conflict, we just have to learn to be patient with the confidence that it, uh, it'll all get sorted out. Um, you may know at, uh, oh, just before World War II, uh, the, the Bible seemed to be in conflict with archaeological science. Here uh, it has a, an account of a massive civilization, Ur, from which Abraham is called. And there was no record of it uh, at all in the archaeological record of, to, of that date. And so the Encyclopedia Britannica, I think it was in the 30s, had an entry, Ur of the Chaldees, a mythological people mentioned only in the Bible. With all of the bombing of World War II uh, uh, in the Middle East, uh, in North Africa, uh, all kinds of things were disrupted. And one of them was a, a little town that was bombed, and in the debris underneath, they found evidence of a massive civilization, a huge library. In fact, I think that uh, the library at Ur now is reckoned one of the oldest and largest libraries of uh, prehistory. Um, and so the next Encyclopedia Britannica it was like five pages with pictures of this massive civilization, a mythological people mentioned only in the Bible. Well, it, that's just one indication of what regularly happens. All, but both of the sciences, the science of interpretation and the sciences, uh, the so-called hard sciences, are inductive processes. There's always more evidence to be gathered, and we always have to adjust 
what we think we know in light of the new investigations. Um, and uh, I think Hodge's strategy is very helpful for a Christian. Um, let me press on then to uh, Beatty's point. Um, in his uh, uh, Presbyterian standards, it's very interesting. Hodge deals uh, exclusively with the confession of faith in the main and will bring in the catechisms a little bit at a time. Beatty's trying to do a, a synthesis of it, and it's a very interesting book. So here is his point. Next, the standards teach that the world was made in the space of six days. Here, secondary creation comes chiefly into view. What he means by that is that he thinks Genesis 1 gives you primary creation, the whole stuff of the order, and then that stuff in secondary creation is unfolded. Um, Here, secondary creation comes chiefly into view. And the way in which the result of primary creation in chaotic form was reduced to an orderly cosmic condition during a a period of six days is described. It is not necessary to discuss at length the meaning of the term days used here. The term found in the standards is precisely that which occurs in the scripture. Hence, if the word used in scripture is not inconsistent with the idea of 24 hours or that of a long period of time, the language of the standards cannot be out of harmony with either of them. There is little doubt that the framers of the standards meant a literal day of 24 hours. But the caution of the teaching on this point and simply reproducing scripture is worthy of all praise. The door is open in the standards for either interpretation, and the utmost care should be taken not to shut the door at the bidding of a scientific theory against either view. In other words, Beatty is saying by not uh, defining the day, but simply using the scripture term, Any theory that's consistent with Scripture is consistent with the standards on this point. And I think that's a a pretty uh, profound insight. Um, The the four views that uh, our PCA study identified was one, the 24-hour day view, two, the day-age theory, that is, each day stood for an age of creation, Uh, three, the uh, framework view, that was the view of Meredith Klein, who taught at Westminster for so many years, that Genesis gives us a framework of God's created work uh, and, and not a, a, uh, uh, a, a chronological ordering of it. And then the last view has come to be called, I don't remember what the study called it, but the analogic, uh, analogical view. And uh, that view is the one that I hold. Um, That takes it that day in Genesis 1 just means what anyone would mean, a 24-hour day. But it's used as an analogy for God's days, because these aren't our days. They're God-like days. So we read the word day with the regular meaning in mind, and then we take it that we have an anthropomorphism here, and that in some way it's a day, but it's a godlike day, not our like day, and therefore we can't 
conclude anything about the age of the earth from it. I think that has uh, much to commend itself for a variety of reasons that I won't uh, um, bore you with now. But I will say, uh, to mention one other point, um, the, um, uh, I'm skeptical that in the end, exegesis is going to clear up much in this um, debate. Um, I'm also skeptical uh, that science can clear up much. And the reason for that is that um, everybody who believes the testimony of the scripture has to believe that at some point in, in creation, a miracle took place. That uh, something that didn't have a natural causal antecedent suddenly brought things into being. It's not entirely clear just where that is, but somewhere it's there. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Um, and what do we know about miracles? Well, we know that when a miracle takes place, the outcome of it is a natural artifact that has all the characteristics of the natural artifact. So when Jesus made water into wine... What the product was, was not a miraculous type wine that would somehow be empirically identifiable from its characteristics. What was the product was a wine from a particular grape uh, that came from a particular soil that had had a particular growing season because all of that is a part of the naturalness of the product. But the fact is, it wasn't naturally made that way, and so you couldn't deduce from its natural characteristics its history. That's true with every miracle. It, something comes to pass that looks like a natural product, but it doesn't have the history that the character of the thing would anticipate. So at some point, it means that we simply do not have the justification to um, deduce causally into the distant past forever, because at some point that's going to be misleading, since creation at some level was a miracle and not simply a... So do, uh, people say, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? That's the, the big query when you're a sophomore in high school. And they talk about it as if it's perplexing. But it's not perplexing at all. They were created, male and female, in the image of God, with the body that God intended for all people to have. They looked exactly like the product of their, of their own love, their offspring. The, the kids didn't look at them and say, gosh, you're queer looking, mommy and dad. You don't have the, all the things that I have. No, no, no. They were created miraculously, but miraculously to be and look like what nature would bring into being following that. Um, so, anyway, I didn't mean to take quite that much time on that, but perhaps that's helpful to you if you've struggled with these things and uh, at least to identify for you that uh, there is uh, some... Uh, latitude in the PCA with respect. But we talked about earlier taking exceptions. Um, 
And in the main, the courts of the church don't believe you need to take exception if you hold one of those views. They believe every one of those views is consistent with the words of the Confession of Faith, somewhat along the line, lines of Beatty's argument, although I'm not sure it, all that many people know his argument, but it's something like that. Anybody a question on that point? All right, well, the last bit, all very good. Um, a quick comment here. Sometimes uh, we take it... Uh, that very good means it was a perfect creation. And um, by perfect, they mean abstractly considered. If you imagined all of the things that might belong to a creation, since God created it and called it good, it must be of that character, the highest, the best uh, possible. And some people, in fact, have talked about whether this is the best of all possible worlds, as if that was an intelligible question. Now, I don't think the Bible teaches us that this is the best possible world or a perfect world abstractly considered, if there could even be such a thing. But as I urged before on a different sort of question, uh, that is the sufficiency of uh, Scripture, this is a question of exegesis not of speculation. When we want to know what very good means, we, we don't speculate about it. We look into the text of Scripture to find out what it's very good for. And what it's very good for is God's purpose for this creation. It is a perfect creation for the purposes of God, and he framed it for those purposes. But, for example, since God had a purpose that there would be a rebellion and uh, then a redemption, the created order had within it uh, the potential for natural evil because it would come to be used against sinners as a part of God's chastening or punitive hand, depending on the circumstances. So that there can be earthquakes didn't need to be introduced into the created order after the fall. That was a, a potential of the world as created by God so that it would be adaptable to whatever his purposes were at any particular point in redemptive history. Um, the whole created order didn't need to be readjusted because of the fall. All the ways in which the created order would play into the curse were potential in the very good creation from the beginning and part of why it could have been called very good. I think that's the way properly to think about it. Well, anything more on creation from anybody? All right. Um, We, um, oh, nothing more, <laughs> anything more on the first section. <laughs> I, I was way too enthusiastic thinking I'd gotten through all of it. Uh, section two, what we have here uh, is the account of uh, all the other creatures and then the creatures that are most important to the story. Uh, God creates man, male and female, 
with reasonable and immortal souls, with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, after his own image, the law written in the heart, the power to fulfill it, yet under the possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Let me stop there and just make a few comments. Uh, On the one hand, um, we are called creatures along with all the other creatures. Uh, So in, in one way, we have a very humble circumstance. But on the other hand, what a creature it is, because this creature, man, is created in the image of God. Um, and it uh, provokes the psalmist's wonder that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, the uh, Notice that mankind is created male and female in community. There, uh, the first malediction of creation was when God comes to Adam in solitude and says it's not good for a man to be alone. And that had to be overcome by the creation of the woman. So that from the beginning, we are created to be in community, in fellowship. Together, uh, the man and the woman share in the calling of mankind, which can't be fulfilled except by a man and a woman to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth, to subdue it and have dominion over every living thing. Uh, That's the calling of uh, mankind in community, male and female. Uh, They're given certain gifts. Uh, Reason is mentioned. I think reason is, uh, when we talk about reasonable souls, they're packing a lot in there. It means the capacity to know It means the capacity to will, and it means the capacity to act in accordance with what you know and have willed. That's certainly uh, part of what it means to be a reasonable soul. Uh, They're they're granted uh, immortality. That is, that the essential life of that individual is indestructible. Um, And then... You see moral categories. The first, as it were, are, you could call them structural categories or you could call them uh, formal categories. Now we come to the moral categories or the material categories. What's the, what's the character of this being that is uh, rational and immortal? And uh, it's knowledge, righteousness, and holiness in the image of God. Further, we have the conscience referred to. The law of God is written on the heart. That sense of conscience uh, includes three areas. A fundamental sense of oughtness that with respect to whatever the good is, I know I ought to do that, and whatever the bad is, I know I ought not to do that. That's the first basic moral motion. The second um, a sense of a basic grasp of moral principles. Um, the confession will talk about that the law written on the heart is the Ten Commandments, the moral law. Um, and then thirdly, uh, uh, this sense of conscience is that um, um, I have the capacity of self-judgment. Uh, 
and it acts, as it were, independently of me. So that if I don't do what I ought, what I know to be part of the moral calling of my life, my conscience, conscience judges me, says that I'm wrong, and that I deserve punishment. And I have to, if I don't like that deliverance, I have to try and disable conscience in some way or another, because uh, that's why sometimes the con uh, um, conscience is called uh, God's uh, viceroy in the soul, that all of us, when we experience conscience, we don't experience it as something we're doing, but almost as something that's being done to us by the, the, the mind working in this peculiar moral way. Um, so, reason, immortality, a moral sense, uh, conscience, and we have the capacity at this point to live by these things, but with the possibility of change, the possibility of transgressing. It's one of the great uh, understatements of all time. Uh, how do we know that they had the possibility of transgressing, that they were subject to change? We know it because they did, <laughs> but we don't know anything beyond that. Uh, and if they did do it, then they had to have had the possibility of it, and that's as far as we can go backward. Um, and I, here I think it's useful, and many Reformed theologians, the divines don't do it in so many words, but I think it's, it's uh, uh, underlying part of what the confession is saying. We distinguish between, um, well, let me start with the quandary. Clearly the Bible um, believes that even fallen men and women are in some sense still in the image of God. And yet clearly the Bible believes that in some sense the image was destroyed by the fall. And what a number of theologians, uh, Jonathan Edwards, for example, uh, very astutely argues, that the natural image of God is what is preserved, and that's reason and immortality. The ability to know, to will, and to act accordingly, the, what we were calling the structural. And that the moral image is that righteousness and holiness uh, and uh, knowledge meaning love for God. And that's what's destroyed at the fall. That's what the death is, is with respect to that moral nature. And that's what is restored when we're restored to the image of God uh, by the gospel. And what remains the same throughout is that uh, structural image of uh, reason and immortality. And I think that's a very helpful way to think about it. Um, the, um, uh, well, to press on to the end of that, uh, in fact, the end of creation here, um, that uh, the divines note that uh, Adam and Eve had received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. So this is beyond the moral law internalized, the conscience, the law written on the heart. It's a special command. 
It wasn't a part of natural law. It wasn't something deducible from God's moral character and our own moral character. It is purely a positive law, which God, as the lawgiver, had a right to do. He, he could command as he would. Um, so that so far as the content was concerned, to violate it could seem good. Um, but it was a perfect prohibition because they were called to obey simply because God said to obey. Not because they saw it was a good thing, not because they saw it was in some way fulfilling their nature. And in fact, you'll recall that that's part of the problem. Uh, Eve said, well, it's beautiful. Looks like it's good for food. And it's certainly a pleasant and important thing to have knowledge. So it was a prohibition, but the prohibition didn't seem like many prohibitions where you know what you're being warned off again against is death. This, you're being forbidden from, from something that seems good. And so it, your obedience then is focused precisely not on the thing itself, but on the one who commanded and shows that you're willing to have fealty to God because he, he is the king and the lawgiver. Um, the, uh, well, so, chapter 4, Doctrine of Creation. I'll press on if, no, if nobody wants to uh, jump in here or ask a question or something or a comment. All right, chapter 5 of Providence. Um, I have to say that the chapter on Providence is one of my favorites in the Confession of Faith, and I, th I think it's one of the great doctrines unfolded by the divines. Uh, and in fact, it was their doctrine of Providence that in many ways made them such effective Christians in the world. Um, but we'll see more of that as we go along. So, recall, we have the decrees of God, that's God's purposes. Um, and how are those decrees affected? Well, in God's works of creation and his works of providence. So we've looked at the first of the way in which the decrees are unfolded, the work of creation, and now we're into the ongoing and long-term work, uh, the work of um, providence. So God, the creator of all things, um, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things. You, you couldn't have a sentence more comprehensive than that. Uh, from the greatest, even to the very least, um, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge. Um, this Here they pick up uh, Hebrews 1.3, that God is upholding all things by the word of his power. Creation isn't wound up and existing of itself, but it is dependent moment by moment upon God, both for it being upheld, in, held into being, and for the direction of it. Um, the um, God is uh, 
doing this from the greatest to the least. This is some of the precious things that um, uh, once you think about it, if there really is a causal system, you couldn't be just attentive to the greatest because the least are the things that all go into making up the greatest. You, you, you've got to have a part of every step in the way from the first beginnings to the final outcome. But furthermore, um, you, you see the way Jesus talks about this in Matthew 10, that um, it is a great comfort to God's people that not a hair of their head falls to the ground apart from the will of their heavenly Father. Um, and also you'll remember here that um, they say according to his infallible foreknowledge, but recall that this is an anthropomorphism. Uh, the um, God's foreknowledge is nothing other than the knowledge of his own purposes and what he's going to work out. He's not looking down the, uh, ahead in the film to see what's going to happen and then uh, he has infallible foreknowledge because he's seen what's going to happen. It has, it has infallible foreknowledge because he knows what he's going to do. Um, and you can see that nicely in Acts 15.8, uh, one of the proofs. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Uh, that's what his foreknowledge is. All, all, he knows all his works from the beginning of the world. Uh, this is according to the free and immutable counsel of his own will. And it's all to the praise of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So th this closing point, I think, is worth underlining in terms of uh, the piety that the, the confession inculcates. Everything that happens, we've just heard, is the unfolding of God's will, and it's to the praise of the glory, that is, the shining forth of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That is, God wants us to see that in providence. He wants us to see his wisdom, his power, his justice, goodness, and mercy. And we fairly could say, first, do I have eyes to see? Do I have the receptors to grasp this? Have I been training my mind and heart to be ready to see that? Second, am I actually looking for it? Am I engaging the world in such a way that I'm curious and interested to see uh, God's glory in these things working out in the daily affairs of life? And then finally, if I'm looking, then what am I discovering? What is the fruit of that in my life of such meditations to grow in confidence and in uh, admiration, in uh, trust and hope and so on. This is such a rich and powerful doctrine. Um, and it, it's worth trying to use it for that purpose um, as we study. All right. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree, uh, God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. So from one point of view, the first point of view, God's vantage point, everything comes to pass certainly and unchangeably. But the divines say, 
Uh, yet, by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So now we're looking at uh, the vantage point is from the point of view of the world, the world of second causes. And that world is going to look like the world that it was created to be. Um, that uh, the different ways in which causality functions or uh, chance functions um, from our point of view are all perfectly appropriately part of that order. Um, and you can see this in uh, a couple of texts. Um, in Acts 2.23, you recall, um, the uh, char charge that Peter makes in his sermon is that um, Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain. Two causes, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God and wicked hands. Both of them at work, but neither inconsistent with one another. Uh, one working from the point, point of view of God and providence, the other working from the vantage point of the world and the worldly causes. One of the most striking passages, and here I think the divines uh, didn't go far enough in the, what they cited, uh, and that's in Isaiah 10, uh, verses um, 6 through 15. I won't read the whole thing, but excerpts from it, but this is, this is so striking. Um, God says he's going to um, raise up Assyria to be the rod of his wrath, the king of Assyria. It, it, the text says, I will send him against a hypocritical nation, that is Israel, and against the people of my wrath, I will give him a charge to take the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. How be it he meaneth not so, neither does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. So do you see, the instrument thinks he's doing one thing, being a bold, mighty conqueror, overcoming nations, from Providence's point of view, this unknowing uh, rebel himself is being used as an instrument of God to punish Israel. But then notice how the prophet continues. When the Lord has finished his work, punishing Israel through Assyria, then he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom shall the axe boast over he that hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or a staff should lift him who is not wood. You see that the there's a perfect scriptural intertwining of those two points of view. Providence necessary, all to be accomplished according to God's vantage point. 
but in from our vantage point, confusion, chaos, some people doing this for that reason, but in the end, God's purposes are going to be uh, worked out. Um, well, uh, section three. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, or against them at his pleasure. So um, it used to be uh, that uh, reformed people, at least, thought of providence in um, three ways. You had ordinary providence, you had special providence, and then you had miracle. And I think we've lost something considerable uh, uh, in the loss of those categories. What's ordinary providence? Well, it makes use of means, and it's then just the regular way the world works. The uh, rain comes, the crop, the field gets muddy, the seeds are watered, the sun shines, they grow up. This is the ordinary way in which the world works. And we learn what ordinary providence is by living through it. When you're a child, you're not just exactly sure what ordinary providence is. It's something that you come to be accustomed to and therefore, in your mind, expect those regular patterns. Now then, there's miracle. Uh, and that would, it used to be the Latin phrase that describes contranatorum. It's other than ordinary providence. It's, in fact, against ordinary providence, the prophet's uh, axe head floating on the water, uh, against all the norms of the way things regularly work. And the miracle has a particular purpose. Um, it is to authenticate a spokesman of God, that God is with him. And today, Christians, for the most part, only get those two categories, ordinary providence and miracle. But there is a third a, a middle category, and that is special providence. That is where God uses the ordinary means, the causes uh, of ordinary providence, but uses them in a way that specially draws his attention to his care uh, of some people or to his wrath of some people. Uh, what would be an example? Well, the, one of the clearest examples in my mind is that uh, evacuation at Dunkirk. I don't know if you know that story, but the English Channel is usually terribly rough at the time of the year they were in. Uh, the um, uh, uh, for some reason, uh, it was hard to tell why, uh, cloud cover came in over the beaches, so the Germans' pl planes couldn't get into the air. Cloud cover would make you think stormy, but the channel was particularly calm. All for reasons that you could figure out if you studied the uh, thing long enough. But they could get a whole flotilla of little boats, as well as big boats, across the channel and evacuated the whole army and preserved uh, the British cause. 
Now, there are all kinds of ways you could go wrong. For example, um, you couldn't deduce from that that God was in favor of the British cause. But if you already knew that the British were doing things consistent with God's revealed will, then you would see that as a special vindication of that faithful behavior through this remarkable collation of ordinary providences making something quite extraordinary come to pass. You wouldn't talk about it as a miracle, but you would certainly acknowledge God's special hand uh, in that project. Um, Well, that would be uh, something of what they're getting at here. Um, God's free to work uh, without means, above the means, even against the means, and that at his pleasure. Um, that is simply because it's what he wants to do and he doesn't have to give an account to us, like to us which he's chosen and why. Greg. Uh, so, Dave, I guess I'm kind of taking from what you just described to special providence or you might say extraordinary providence. Uh, I'm thinking that most of the time when people talk about it was a miracle yes, or this was miraculous, they're really talking about special problems. Yes, and they just don't have the category for it. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that's why I think it'd be great if if we could reintroduce it to the evangelical vocabulary. (laughs) The... um, uh, so in the Olympics, they could say, do you believe in special providences? <laughs> Instead of miracles. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, think of it. Um, I'm uh, uh, finally finished my undergraduate degree. I think it took me about eight years. And um, we've made the momentous decision to uh, leave Ligonier and move into Pittsburgh to go to Pittsburgh Seminary. We we come back to Washington because we gave up our home in Ligonier, came back to Washington, lived with my folks so I could get a job in a big production bakery, which I'd done on many summers that was very high paying. You get a lot of overtime to try and build up enough money to be able to get to school and not have to work while I was in school. So the um, uh, in August, just before I was to leave, is at the end of a shift. Uh, the uh, we were working on a a uh, a line. It's a huge production bakery. Eighteen thousand loaves of bread in eight hours. Um, we were working on a line where rolls dinner rolls and various kinds of rolls would, would come off conveyor out of the oven and there would be a bagging area and a, a belt going by and uh, the line would come in, the um, the lead guy would pull the product into these channels that had panels pushing them along. Uh, the channel would go out, paddle would go under a housing, wind would blow a bag up the paddle would push it in, 
a wraparound thing would take it and go down through the floor into the blues to load on the truck. It was a remarkable problem. Well, uh, that one device was used for like 10 kinds of roles. And most of them very well. But there was one kind of roll, <laughs> it was called a finger roll, uh, that um, the bag's um, lip was too long once the product was in it. And it would regularly catch that lip, drag the bag up into the housing, and jam the whole thing up. That meant product. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of rolls are in the oven and it can't get out. <laughs> so you did not want that thing to jam in there. And so what we finally decided is if one guy sat at the back where the bags were, and just took his hand and held it to keep that lip from getting caught by the paddle, we'd be fine. So I was the guy in the back. The, uh, um, it's, you know, it's monotonous as I'll get out. And I, I don't know, I was starting to daydream or something. And I didn't have my hand in the right place. And I felt that product and bag start to go up into the housing. And so desperately, I reached up into the housing to try and get it and pull it back. And my finger went between the sprocket and the chain that was driving the paddles and just tore the end of it off. <laughs> it, was, it was not a happy moment. Um, and uh, in any case, there was a whole long story related to it. But... Um, the um, the I finally got to a surgeon and he said that he could sew my finger into my thumb pad and he thought he could reconstruct that finger if I wanted to try and keep it. And, and I said, well, what's that amount to? And he said, well, you, you'd be in a cast probably off and on for six to nine months. And it was my right hand and I thought, I'm not going to miss my first semester and not be able to so he said, the alternative is I'm just going to have to trim the rest of it off. <laughs> so he got out of his uh, garden shears and <laughs> fixed me up. Uh, and uh, so I was very, very discouraged because I still wasn't going to be able to write very well. Uh, but at least I wouldn't be completely hobbled. And uh, so I, you know, thinking about Providence, it had worked out so wonderfully for me to go. And I'm thinking, Lord, what? And, uh, well, I, we get back to school and I get a phone call from the union. And they said, uh, uh, you get workman's comp for this. And the finger had a certain value. <laughs> I didn't realize your body parts were all <laughs> parsed out somewhere. <laughs> and that little bit of an end of a finger paid for my whole first term of seminary, so I didn't have to work at all. <laughs> so uh, there's the Lord bringing good out of evil, and uh, but uh, it um, um, he's free to do it how he wants, and we just have to be attending to it, and if we be attentive enough. It, it can seem quite remarkable. All right. 
Um, <clears throat> go. Boy, that story went on too long. Uh, oh, I'm not even close. All right, we'll come, we'll come back to this next week. Um, I'm sorry uh, to take the last part of your evening there, um, but m- maybe such a weird story will illustrate something powerfully in your memory. Um, so we'll start up next time at section four. Oh, no, we, no, yeah, we've got to do section four, yeah, section four. And uh, that'll be at our regular time next Wednesday. Does anybody have a comment or question or anything you'd like to remark on um, before we quit? Well, thank you for rescheduling this, and I hope your, your time tomorrow, the SJC, is, is profitable. Well, thank you, Paul. It's going to be a lively meeting, and it's so hard to try and do things like this through a, a conference call, um, even with video. So pray for us. We've got uh, a couple of fairly significant, one, one case that uh, is dealing with a very prominent and large church, and uh, we're finding that uh, the session made some pretty profound errors, and we're going to have to correct them. Um, Uh, yeah, if you think of it, pray for us. We'll be from 6 to 8.30, I think, tomorrow. So, well, let me pray for us. Father, how wonderful it is that um, by your word opening our eyes and your grace at work so that we want to see that we can behold your glory, the glory of your power and wisdom goodness and mercy in all the events around us and that where we can't see it we're taught to be patient and to wait on you and to trust in you Uh, we thank you for the doctrine of creation and providence and we pray that we will uh, be better enabled to love and serve you in this world for our efforts and we ask it in Jesus name Amen